there's so many providers in the NICU that it's such a common experience for parents to think, what is my role here? Like, what is the point of me even being here? And what we try to emphasize is that like only a parent can provide warmth, affection, love, and care that a parent can provide. It's its own form of medicine. Having a child in the NICU is a situation no parent wants to find themselves in. Not only is it a time filled with overwhelmingly difficult emotions, but it's often filled with a sudden emergence of medical jargon, confusing decisions, and scary what-ifs. Today's guests are working so hard to provide support to these NICU parents who so desperately need it. Together, Dr. Stephanie Simon, who's a licensed clinical psychologist, and Amanda Nealon, a board-certified pediatric nurse practitioner with over nine years' experience as a neonatal intensive care nurse, have teamed up to create NICU Nook, an online course that guides parents through each step of their NICU journeys. Whether you are expecting and you want to make a plan should you find yourself needing a NICU stay, or you've been a NICU parent and are still processing that experience, this episode will dive into what it can feel like to have a baby in the NICU and the supports that are available should you find yourself there. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hello, everyone. I'm super excited to introduce our guest today, um, Dr. Stephanie Simon, Amanda Nealon. Thank you guys so much for being here. I'm, I'm really happy to have this conversation with you guys. We're excited, too. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. We're really excited to talk about NICU. I know. Stuff. It's, it's like you get passionate about stuff, right? And so... That's actually a good segue. Like, how did you guys come together? You guys, so, you know, one of you is a psychologist. One of one of you is a board-certified pediatric nurse practitioner. You know, did you guys know each other before you started working with families around NICU support? Yeah, Stephanie and I have been best friends since high school. Um, and we've just, you know, been best friends ever since. Um, once I graduated um, undergraduate, I did nursing as my bachelor's degree. My first job was as a NICU nurse at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. And Stephanie, your postdoc, your, um, not your postdoc, you did, um, a in my, uh, doctoral training, I, uh, my dissertation was actually on creating a group therapy for parents of babies hospitalized in the NICU who were experiencing post-traumatic stress, depression, or anxiety symptoms. Mm-hmm. So we had these share, this shared interest. Yeah. And um, throughout that time, I feel like Stephanie would ask me like, Hey, what does this mean? Like, what does trophic feeding mean? Or like a medicalized NICU term. And I would offer, you know, my support there. And I would ask her questions about like how to handle a family going through it particularly difficult time based on her expertise. And we always had a fantasy of um, starting our own business together. So I think (laughs) the stars aligned and we saw this opportunity to combine our shared interests and passion and experience. Yeah. And we work really well together. So that also helps. (laughs) Super important. Yeah, But But you come at this sort of this issue, right? Because it's different for every family, but you know, if you have a kid in the NICU, it's a really hard time, period. And whether you knew it was going to happen or it's completely blindsided you, it's a really stressful time. And it sounds like you guys are both coming at the support of families who are going through a NICU experience from like totally different angles and, and ex- areas of expertise, but they're really synergistic. Absolutely. Like I, so we provide tools and techniques to really, I mean, for the purpose of this podcast, to establish a secure attachment and a bond with your baby from an emotional standpoint, but also so much of the uncertainty that comes with being a NICU parent and the sort of 
like just unexpected sudden experience what amanda provides is like certainty around what to expect from the nicu environment and from these medical terms that are really unfamiliar and just being just thrown into an experience that most parents know nothing about understandably Mm-hmm. So we come right. at it from these two angles that really work together, like they do, like they should in a hospital system. <laughs> um, but we provide it for parents so that you know, from the comfort of their own home or at bedside. They yeah, can watch and our I would videos. say, um, as a NICU nurse, obviously a big part of my job is providing direct nursing care to the babies. Um, you know, like doing their vital signs, changing their diapers, administering medications. Um, but also our like secondary patients are the parents themselves who are at the bedside most of the time. So my time as a nurse is really like almost equally split between like providing direct patient care to the babies and also providing emotional support to the families. Um, less so from like a therapy directed standpoint, but from orienting the families to the NICU, telling them what the daily rhythm is like, what to expect, and how to get hands-on. Because even having your baby like in an incubator, or we call them an isolate in the NICU, is a physical barrier to getting involved. And as a nurse, you're kind of the bridge between the baby and the parent, and you want to help foster that bond. And I try to always involve parents in the care and give them tools and techniques and the confidence to get involved and do that. Mm. Yeah. So it's interesting. Cause I, you know, we talk a lot about on this podcast, like the intersection between child mental health and parental mental health, right? Like you see, they don't exist in isolation of one another. They're interconnected. And so when your sort of family system is going through a collective crisis, you know, when it, when a new baby is in the NICU and that that's obviously puts a strain on the baby. It puts a strain on the parents and then it puts a strain on the family system, right? The parent child relationship, that bonding with the baby, the ability for a parent, um, to feel connected, to stay out of a panic and fight or flight and like survive, like, you know, threat mode and into like an ability to be sort of a safe and connected presence for the child. Cause like, understandably, if you are going through a ton of anxiety and stress and fear, it's hard to kind of get into that, that kind of parasympathetic nervous system space of like safety, connection, comfort, because it's, it's super hard. So like, you know, I'm curious, I'm obviously there's only so much you can do in the moment. We're just kind of trying to survive. But like, what are some things parents can think about with respect to like, do you, like put, putting on their their mask first, their air mask first, right? Like they have to kind of figure out how to manage their stress and their fear and their, and mm-hmm. their you know, trauma around this in order to help establish some safety with their kid. Like what are... How does that play into all of this in your guys' mind? Um, well, I think first, oh, I, I think what you said about sympathetic nervous system arousal is so prevalent in the NICU, particularly given that it's not only an unexpected experience and it's scary and shocking, but also it might have come after like a traumatic birth and delivery. And the alarms, the beeping sounds of the monitors are like they're always happening they're the background noise of the NICU and they can become associated with danger even though there's might not be a threat of danger so um we actually talk a lot about like incorporating tech and a lot of parents don't know that their sympathetic nervous system is on high alert when it's happening they just they don't even know what's going on so Mm -hmm. um we talk a lot about that in our course um and the importance of uh focusing on like providing soothing grounding we actually walk through soothing and grounding techniques and um challenging unhelpful thinking that can that can uh, result in anxiety and fear and i think what we try to emphasize is that there is no like sort of perfect amount of time to spend in the NICU because the NICU is a stressful environment and it really can be a stressful environment. So 
there's a balance and it's all, you're always striving to create a balance between fostering that bond and providing caregiving to your baby and taking care of yourself. And if that means taking a break from the NICU for a few hours for a day, that's okay. Um, if it means taking care of yourself so that you can engage again, not as an avoidance, uh, strategy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause I imagine like, I'm curious, like, what do you guys see are some of like the patterns that come up with, you know, you're alluding to one, which is like a parent perhaps thinking I'm supposed to be here at all moments of all the time. Otherwise I'm failing my baby the pressure that parents can put on themselves. Like, are there other things that you tend to see happen? And I'm sure there's a variety, but like kind of things that tend to happen in families that are going through this experience um, that we might not be so aware of that, that could be getting in our way. I think it's true. You see a dichotomy between the families, um, especially if it's a first child um, where the mom or dad is just there almost 24 hours a day, you know, almost to the point of like ignoring their own needs. Like we have to ask, when was the last time you had a shower? When was the last time you had a meal? Um, you can see someone like hoarding snacks at the bedside and like trying to eat. I'm like, why don't you take like 30 minutes and just go into the lounge and just like give your sp yourself some space to, to breathe and focus on yourself. Um, and then on the other side, you have parents that I think do fall into the category of avoidance who like don't visit very often. And, I do want to say that as a NICU provider, we don't come to the table thinking like, oh, you're a bad parent if you don't come. Um, I think most of the time we are aware that obviously the NICU can be a re really triggering place. So if any parents of NICU babies are listening, to, to reach out and talk about reasons why you may not be coming to the NICU and not assume that you know, we're judging you from the provider standpoint, because we do understand that it can be an overwhelming place. Um, but I think talking to your nurse or social worker or psychologist can help you come up with a plan. Like we can let you know when is a good time to visit when you can be actively involved in, you know, changing their diaper and taking their temperature versus just like standing at the bedside or staring at your phone for eight hours, not really getting involved. Cause I think keeping to yourself and not doing the hands-on work promotes this sort of insular, you know, feeling of not being involved with your mm. baby and feeling more like a bystander, which can be alienating and kind of want you to not visit feeling like you're not involved in your baby's care. So why should you even be there? Oh, that's right. Really interesting. Yeah. I think, um, in addition to, so we like talked about the sympathetic nervous system arousal, the like avoidance around engaging in caregiving tasks. Um, there's a bunch of other things that show up that we see a, lo a lot in NICU parents. And one that comes to mind is a sense of sort of like, you know, preterm babies or preemies look really different from full-term babies. They're really small. They might have thin translucent skin, um, they also have wires attached to them at, you know, on their foot, on their nose, taped to their face. Um, so a lot of, a lot of times we'll hear parents talk about how they don't feel like their baby is their own mm. and they don't really look like anyone. Uh, they might look strange or even alien. And like, we try to normalize and validate that that is an okay experience to feel. And it, it, can lead to feeling like detached from your baby. Yeah. So what we try to promote is, and I think the technical term is like infant redefinition, but what that really means is sort of like engaging and caregiving, even with these feelings of detachment and uncertainty um, to promote the bond. Because what we, what we often have said in our, say in our course is, um, love isn't necessarily just a feeling it's an action hmm. um so the more that you can sort of take control and power over your baby's caregiving the more that bond will slowly and gradually develop and it's okay if it does, it's not felt right away i think a lot of people can feel shame over that yeah but it's something yeah. we see so often um in NICU parents so 
Um, I think a lot of what we do is just like identifying and, and saying out loud the feelings that I think people have, but are afraid to say themselves. Like it's okay to feel angry. It's okay to feel guilty. Like it was your fault. It's okay to feel jealous of people who have full term babies. It's okay to feel grief that, you know, you're not at home in the nursery that you set up in your glider recliner chair, but you're, you know, in a hospital surrounded by other families and these constant alarms, you know, it's, it's okay to feel pissed off about that. And I think mm-hmm. people don't talk about that. So they feel uncomfortable and ashamed to admit those feelings. But I think a lot of what we do is just to call it out and hopefully people resonate with one of those and, and feel that it's a safe place. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Particularly in like a environment where there's so many, I mean, Amanda can speak to this more because she's more sort of steeped in the the hospital setting, but there's so many providers in the NICU that it's such a common experience for parents to think, what is my role here? Like, what is the point of me even being here? Mm-hmm. Um, like, what can I provide that the nurses and the social workers and the physicians and the OTs and the physical therapists and the speech therapists, like every sort of facet of the medical world is there present for their baby? What's the point? Um, and what we try to emphasize is that like only a parent can provide warmth, affection, love, and care that a parent can provide. Like that is the essential role. And what we say is it's its own form of medicine. Right. Oh, that's so empowering because I think a lot of parents, I would imagine, can feel like stripped of their role and of their power and agency as a parent as a lot of the things you pictured yourself doing for your child are being done by someone else before your eyes and you feel so helpless to have the role you thought you'd have that to be reminded that those tasks are just tasks when they're done by someone else and the love that you would be in, you know, sharing with your child during those period, those caregiving activities can be given in other way, like can give you give it at other moments and it doesn't have any less value. Right. And we, we always say, um, to our families and as a nurse, to our patients, like you as a parent are an important part of the care team in the NICU, um, just to give them a place at the table and not feel like a visitor, you know, to feel like they really belong there because, you as the parent are the one looking at your baby for hours upon hours. You've taken 5,000 photos of your baby. I'm sure when you go home, you're looking at them. When you're at the bedside, you're really, you know, engaged in a way with your baby that the care team just isn't. Um, so we always encourage families to kind of speak up to the care team if they feel like anything is off or wrong, because as a physician or a nurse in the NICU, if a parent says that something is off, we really do listen and take heed of that. So, um, in our course, we, we encourage families to, um, to find their voice. And, you know, one thing particularly is to participate in rounds, which is the daily, um, team meeting where all the people on the, your baby's care team meet once a day. And that can be a really overwhelming thing for a family member to be a part of it first because it's like 12 different people and everyone's talking about your baby, not necessarily to you, but amongst themselves. And they're using words that you've never heard and, you know, using kilograms instead of pounds and mLs instead of ounces. And it just all these abbreviations can sound so foreign. So we really give parents a step-by-step process to gear themselves up to get involved and it you know starts with something like just calling your nurse after rounds and asking what was talked about then maybe you go to rounds and just sit and listen and then maybe next time you come with one question prepared to get you to a point where you feel comfortable being a person at the table and you really are participating in rounds and I think that's a solid way for a parent to really feel like they are part of the care team Mm. empowered yeah yeah. And I think that's very intimidate could feel very intimidating. So I think that's really sure. nice that you are providing people kind of like a, like a, a template for it, like a crib sheet, yeah. you know, like, Hey, yeah. this is sort of one, it makes sense that this is intimidating. And right. also like, let me give you a quick peek behind the curtain. So it doesn't feel so intimidating when you actually do it, because it's not like, I think for anything, like one when we know what's happening and we can make sense of something, it doesn't feel so scary. But when we have no idea, it can feel kind of like too big to enter into. Right. And we do our best to sort of demystify all these things that happen in the NICU and kind of 
break it down for a normal person to digest and understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because the uncertainty is also like part of the sympathetic nervous system arousal, yeah. just not knowing and how you fit in, where you belong, what to do. I'm curious too, like, obviously, you know, I'm sure a big fear that a lot of parents have when they have a child in the NICU is that we're not going to be able to form this bond. We aren't, we're missing out on very valuable time to create a secure attachment. I get a lot of questions about attachment that are kind of, um, what's the word? Very anxious. Like, and that's regardless of NICU, right? Just, oh Mm -hmm. my gosh, does this mean this? This thing happened. Does it mean this? So a lot of kind of catastrophic thinking around detachment. I think there's a bit of a, I think that's a bit of a byproduct of how mainstream the conversation about attachment science has become, but in some way, and in in a lot of ways, that's fantastic because it's on more people's radar. But in some ways there's like, it's a tricky balance because I think the more mainstream the conversation becomes, the more sort of like telephone tag kind of happens. We're like, oh, I, I'm losing actually the, the, I'm getting a little further away from the facts. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so I like to kind of challenge some of the myths I think are surrounding attachment. And I think this overlaps a lot with the NICU conversation because I think a lot of people think, you know, I can't bond with my baby until they're home with me or I'm, yeah, like, like the clock, there's like a sense of urgency, like the clock is ticking on my window to create the secure attachment. How do you help parents kind of understand the bond and the attachment relationship when their child's in the NICU? Yeah, I mean, I... uh all everything that you just said, I have, I feel so much in my practice as a a therapist who works with a lot of new moms. Um, and which actually makes me think about how I eventually think we should talk about life after the NICU because that's important too. Um, but you know, I like what's so important is, you know, being responsive, but being responsive and engaged, um, not perfectly. (laughs) Um, but from day one, like bonding starts and we say this in our course a lot, bonding starts now. Um, like it isn't, there's no time, there's no sense of urgency. It's, it's today. And it might not look the way that you thought it was going to look like you might not be breastfeeding right now. And you might actually not even be able to hold your baby right away. Um, But there are other ways that uh, that can promote that, that bonding and the sense that you're there, which is really what the baby or your child needs most is to know that they're held in mind, that you're going to show up for them, that you're going to attune to their needs. Not 100%, Mm -hmm. maybe not even 70 or 60% of the time. Um, But so we do talk about ways that um, if you can't hold your baby or if you can't feed in the way that you really want to or envisioned, there are other ways like containing touch is something that we talk about. And that's a huge NICU term, which is uh, like gently, but gently, but firmly putting your hand on, on your baby to like show that you're there. And it actually really can calm them in um, during pain, during distressing time, um, singing to your baby, talking to your baby. Um, there's something that we call, and I don't know how widespread this is, but scent hearts where you sort of take a piece of fabric, you put it in your uh, shirt or in your bra for a day and it it captures your scent and then you Mm. leave it in the isolate and it actually has been shown through research to reduce the NICU length of stay. So wow. these small gestures have huge um, benefits uh, for your baby's care and, and for the bond and yeah. attachment. It's interesting because that makes me think about the fact that there's so many ways beyond touch that we are able to communicate to our child's nervous system and their brain mm-hmm. and their body that we're there. Mm-hmm. and can be a soothing presence. Like even when we talk about 
you could talk about tantrums a lot, right? Talk about co-regulation. And when our kids are like totally melting down, losing it at a total 10 out of 10, and we are trying to sort of name their feeling and validate their feeling, but it actually just like makes them worse. And it's, and I'll often say, it's like, well, how can you validate your child's experience without words? Because the words are too stimulating in that moment, right? There's so many different ways to get into a child's inner world and offer something that is regulating to them that isn't necessarily like touch or words or what you know whatever like if one avenue isn't accessible to us what other avenues do we have and so yeah like that the pressure of a hand on the chest or the or you know a scent or a sound like we can come into their brain from lots of different places it doesn't have to be touch Mm-hmm. Right. That's a mm-hmm. good point because touch is often so limited both by your baby's medical condition at the moment, um, but also the fact that you just can't be in the NICU 24 hours a day. Even like, you know, the parent that wants to be the best parent by, you know, whoever's definition has to go home at some point because they have a job and they have a home and they probably, you know, may have other children or family members to attend to. Um, so that's just also hard to come to terms with that. You just can't be there all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you're a bad parent. It's just the right. reality. <laughs> right. Yeah. And we also, you know, obviously as a parent, one way that you bond with your baby is feeding them. And if, you know, maybe you wanted to exclusively breast or chest feed, um, that's also probably not totally realistic in the NICU because you just can't be there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, day in and day out. Um, and also a lot of babies don't start out eating by mouth in the NICU. Oftentimes they're tube fed or IV fed. Um, but we talk about ways to still get that bonding experience by like holding your baby doing skin to skin or kangaroo care while they're getting fed by the feeding tube. And you can, you know, still experience that with them during their feeding time or offering them a pacifier as they're getting a tube feed. And then eventually we cross a path into bottle feeding and how to hold a smaller baby while offering a bottle and, you know, ways to burp them and how, you know, it's different than holding, you know, like your niece or nephew who was born at 10 pounds of birth, you know, there's different ways to do that. So we, we talk about that and have a little section where Stephanie and I have like a, a little preemie baby doll and demonstrate how to do that exactly. Cause it, it takes some skill. It's easy once you get it down. Um, and I'd say almost every parent is able to do it, but, um, you know, it's just, you need something to show you. And it can be intimidating cause the baby is baby pre- preemies are small. Um, they often can be seen by parents as fragile. They are a little fragile, right? I mean, they're they're strong emotionally because they're getting through something so extremely stressful. Um, but they're they're little, uh, which can be alarming. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it makes me think too about like our ability to sort of see our child as strong. And that's exceptionally difficult in a NICU when they physically look fragile. Um, And I imagine that's a hurdle that some parents may struggle to get over is to really sort of show up and embody this real authentic confidence that my kid can handle this. We can handle this. Doesn't mean it's not excruciatingly hard. But that inherently, I believe and I trust that I, myself, the parent, and also my child and our family, we can do this. And sometimes you have to fake it till you make it. But I imagine that remembering to kind of embody that confidence, there's a lot of benefit to that. We see that in other areas of parenting as well. Like I, you know, I do a lot of work with like parents of kids who have severe anxiety, right? And yeah, in the moment, it does not feel like they can survive that feeling of anxiety. And they'll do absolutely anything to get out of that feeling, including pulling us in to like rescue them from it. But when we really believe, oh, this is a really tough feeling and I know that you can handle it, that kind of embodying that confidence really helps bridge the child through and out of the feeling eventually. And I think in a way this like NICU experience is similar, I'm imagining, because it's like I have to believe and sort of show up in a way that shows my child 
in all these ways that are like beyond like language, right? This is obviously super pre-verbal. This is just like nervous system to nervous system talking, but that I believe that like you can do this and that you're strong and that we're strong. And that's like kind of how you get through some, that's how you kind of bridge out of some of these really tough moments and not have to go back to that attachment, that fear. Like if I'm, I'm running out of time to make the secure attachment, right? I, to believe that like we have time, mm-hmm. we have time and we're doing the work that we need to do now so that we can keep going once you get out of the hospital. Right. And I think having it, you know, forming a secure attachment, although you said it's so in popular culture and media right now, like that word, that phrase, but it's also very nebulous to someone who's not a therapist. Like I know the idea of secure attachment, but it's hard to really define. Um, so I think that's why it's helpful when we offer these like tangible tips, like what can you do today in the NICU on day zero? What can you do on day five? What can you do once you feel confident to do these sorts of things? Cause it gives you a roadmap. You don't have to worry about getting to the end point of secure attachment. You can just worry about, let's just change a diaper today. Let's just take a temperature today. Let's just listen to yes. rounds today. And then over time you can reflect and look back and be like, wow, this is week three and week zero. I was, I was a preemie, you know, as a parent, right. like I didn't know what was going on. And then <laughs> you can see yourself, how you've grown as a parent and hopefully that experience, like looking back of what you couldn't do before, what you can do now will show you that you do have the confidence, even if you don't feel like it. Um, that makes me think of our next tool that we offer is our baby diary, um, which is great because it's a physical template that you can print out or, you know, use as a template and have a note on your phone. But we guide families in terms of what they can do for the baby. And it gives them a place to write down everything that they've done so that they can look back and see all the progress they've made as a parent. Mm. Um, Stephanie, I know you kind of in, in graduate school worked with the baby diary originally yeah, it, I think it's really designed to Sarah what you to kind of emphasize or strengthen that that belief like that I can do this because the more that you actually do and then reflect on what you've done, the more you can believe that you're you're doing it right. Like mm-hmm. you're giving care to your baby, you're engaging in their in support, you're uh, showing up. Um, and, and so I think the reflection for a NICU parent is so essential, um, because you can, NICU parents can so easily get caught up in what's not happening. Like my baby hasn't gone a day without a DSAT, um, or my baby's still not five pounds or my baby's still not feeding from a bottle. Um, but the more that kind of to emphasize your point, like the more that we get caught up in like what they can't do and feel defeated and anxious and sad. I mean, those feelings make sense. Um, but the more we do that, the, I, I, oftentimes I had imagined the more you show up to your baby's care in this sort of like defeated, deflated state. Um, and I think what you, what you were suggesting is like, a kind of a way to foster post-traumatic growth. I think what you were saying was really like from the framework of post-traumatic growth, like this is a traumatic experience. And the more that you can really believe that like you're going to make it through and, and do the things that are in line with that belief, the more the secure, the bond can form, but also the, um, like the chances for just tremendous growth for you as a parent and your baby. Yeah. And resilience. Yeah. And that's, I think, you know, like Amanda, sort of, you're saying like, okay, secure attachment, that's so abstract. And what does that even mean? And a lot of times, a lot of the stuff when you're dealing with a brand new baby, especially in the NICU and everything can feel kind of like big and impossible. And I don't even really understand it. So we get stuck in that space. We kind of, get paralyzed. We don't really, we just kind of freeze. And so I think what you guys are doing in this, it just in general, this idea of being like, okay, I kind of put one foot in front of the other 
and I just have to focus on what I'm doing right now. Right. What can I do today? What can I do in this moment? That actually helps people to, you know, if you just keep doing that, you're going to look over your shoulder and be like, whoa, I've come a real long way. Right. Like that's a work of the secure attachment rather than just focusing on the end goal. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And that, then you miss the process too. Yeah. <laughs> and the process is the joy, right? The, yeah, the whole thing. Yeah. Even if it's really, really crappy, right? Cause it's yeah. exactly the process of being a NICU parent is probably excruciating, but there's still opportunities and moments for joy and growth and connection and it's they're there it's all in there together it's right you have to offer, be able to we see offer it. like prompts too in this diary to be like what does my baby look like who does it look like ways to kind of maybe get out of the medical mindset that you know the mm-hmm. NICU was so focused on it's like how much weight did he gain what were his vital signs but like to really enjoy you know, the, the softer side of parenthood that is so often overlooked when your child is sick. Um, but it's yeah. like, what does your baby look like? What are your hopes and dreams for your baby? What did your baby, you know, when did your baby first smile at you? When did they first take a pacifier? Um, and those prompts also, I think like help ground parents, you know, because it's a list and you just fill it out. You know, if your mind is all over the place and you can't, you yourself can't come up with these sorts of milestones for your baby, we, we give them to you. And then we have places where you can fill in your own stuff too. Yeah. But I think it's helpful just to kind of take that mental load off yourself and just print this thing out and follow our prompts. And, you know, that's part of the work too. Mm-hmm. It's like palatable and digestible. Yeah. Um, and when e- everything easy, <laughs> when everything can feel so overwhelming. Yeah. And then, so let's talk about when you get home, like life after the NICU. Cause I think that's a huge, yeah. I think that gets missed a lot. What I'm realizing and looking at, you know, all the resources out there, there, you know, there's gaps, but I think a real big gap is life after the NICU. It's like they're home. We're, we're, we're sort of done now. Um, and what I think we don't often talk about, uh, is the, basically like what's in a lot of the literature on having a medically fragile or sick child is this idea that even when your baby is now medically stable and healthy, parents might continue to see their baby as fragile Mm. and unstable and operate and behave as a parent from that framework. So what we often see with parents is there might be like excessive concern, high frequency use of healthcare, difficulties separating, um, difficulties, or even like just a refusal to set age appropriate limits and like, and allow exploration, which is so important with a developing baby. Um, and what we call, there's a term for this, it's called vulnerable child syndrome. Mm. And, what, so what we talk about is sort of being able to balance this idea, like it's okay to protect your baby, right? Like it's okay to want to, for them to feel safe and be safe, but also can you, as a parent, allow for that exploration so that they can sort of, you know, go off on their own and you're there, you're always going to be there, um, but they don't, they might not need you in the way that they did when they were in the NICU, Um, particularly if they're developing and growing and they're two now and they want to play in the yard without you, if you keep following because you're afraid and sort of operating as though they're fragile and and sick, um, you might be right by their side, hovering over them, making sure they're not getting into too much dirt and then, you know, can lead to sort of a more anxious attachment style and, and, um, and then the lack of like ex- desire to explore in the, in the child. Um, so that's something yeah. that we, we aim to talk about a lot because um, we feel like it's a little missed. 
Yeah. I mean, that makes me think a lot about the idea of a secure base, right? When attachment theory, we talk a lot about the, a parent being a secure base, which means that we, not only do we meet our child's needs enough of the time that they believe that we will, so they can kind of rest comfortably in their trust in our ability to take care of them, which again, for the record, is not all the time. Like no. more often than not, I say like 51% of the time you meet our kids' needs, they will probably assume we'll be able to. But it doesn't just stop there, right? It also is our ability to, in meeting their needs enough of the time that they can sort of trust us to be there, what that then does is allow them confidence to separate from us and explore their world because they know and believe we'll be there when they come back. And sometimes as parents, we can interrupt that exploration process because we're too anxious. And so exactly. we need to meet their needs enough of the time that we they trust that we'll be there when they leave and come back. And the leaving and coming back is a really important part. We have to let them go and explore and take risks and see how far away from us they can go before, oh, I need some fill up. I have to go back to my secure base and refuel and then we're there for them. But we can't follow them around. Otherwise, we're not being that secure base. Secure base doesn't move that much. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And if you're starting out in your child's life, if your child's born into the world and they're sick or they're not, they're born um, preterm, that it's it it would make sense. I just want to validate. Like it would absolutely make sense that a parent would continue on and maybe be a little more restrictive in terms of allowing that exploration. And we want to emphasize that that is it's really really important. Mm-hmm. And so we sort of challenge parents to think about like how what limit like what limit can you set today or. What can you um, encourage an age-appropriate developmental milestone? Can you encourage that maybe you're really anxious about? And like, can you encourage it and feel anxious about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can we tolerate our anxiety as the parent enough to sort of let something happen that's scary? Exactly. (laughs) And, And in doing that, we're showing our kids like, hey, Feeling anxious is safe, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And our exactly. goal is to is to capture families um, while they're in the NICU and to not warn them, but just to educate them about this being a risk factor for having a traumatic early life experience of having your baby in the NICU. You may be at risk of developing vulnerable child syndrome, and how can you take those steps to avoid that? Mm. Um, yeah, and we see that happening um, with like other risk factors are when uh, parents experience fertility challenges um, or pregnancy or delivery complications, and then of course like PMADs, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, if people are listening to this and they want to, you know, because a lot of times I will say. To I work with a lot of parents who are expecting or, you know, they don't know that they're going to have what's going, you know, whether it's, I, you don't know, you're going to get a postpartum uh, depression. You know, you don't know if you're going to have a traumatic birth experience. You don't know if you're going to have a NICU stay. Um, and obviously we hope that everything is, you know, smooth sailing. And I think it's important that we like believe that things will go well. We don't white knuckle it through pregnancy either. But I think one of the things I'll often encourage parents to do is like, just like you make a birth plan, make a postpartum mental health plan. You know, what would you want, what would you want care to look like if this occurs? You know, how would you want, who, can you think of a couple people who you would want to reach out to if you need support? Um, Can you just sort of plan ahead in that way. Like, do you need postpartum care? Like, do you want to set up a, you know, a postpartum doula or a baby nurse or some way to like support your mental health in the recovery, you know, the postpartum. And I think 
thinking about a NICU possibility and thinking about how would I cope with this? What would my supports be? If I have other kids, who's going to help out with that? It's like an insurance policy. You never want to have to use it, but it's good that it's there and it can really help if you do find yourself in that situation. Are there things you encourage parents to think about who maybe, you know, are listening to this, they're pregnant, they have no expectation that they're going to be in the NICU, or maybe they do because they know that that's, you know, there's been a diagnosis in, you know, while pregnant and they, they can anticipate it in advance. But for people who are pregnant right now, either because they're listening because they're curious or they know there's going to be a NICU stay, or maybe they've just been in the NICU and they, you know, they've done it before and they, they know they need to think about it. Like, what would you advise those parents to be thinking about in advance? Um, obviously, that our resource, NICU Nook, is available to families. And our, our true goal is really to capture families on day one. Because I think the earlier that you acknowledge that you would like some extra guidance and support the easier your time is going to be rather than to be suffering alone or to not know or just to be lost in the bowels of the internet reading all sorts of different resources. I think just to have one consolidated source of information is helpful to mm -hmm. av avoid, you know, getting lost online. Um, and just that, you know, you're not alone. And even though, you know, in the NICU, you, there, you can always see the other babies and the other families, but to just to know that, you know, there is help available um, to talk to your neighbors, to reach out to friends, even who've not had NICU babies, um, and to make, you know, contacts in the NICU with other families that are going through it with you. Um, and just to be open about what you're feeling. And um, I think the sooner you acknowledge to yourself, you know, what's going on, the easier it is for you to, to get help. Because if you just go on and persevere and act like everything is fine, then, you know, you're missing out on that time to kind of recover yourself. Yeah, I think to expand on that, like, um, really important thing that we often will, we often see parents blame themselves. So just to remember, like, this is not your fault. Yeah. There is nothing, if you could have prevented this, you would have prevented this. So it's not your fault. Um, and uh, I think that's just such an important thing going into something yeah, like this because it's so goal. shocking and mm -hmm. can be so just surprising and, and traumatic and confusing and scary and just like every emotion that you could possibly feel, Nikki parents mm -hmm. feel right away. Um, so it's not your fault. And then I also think, um, which Amanda and I talk about in our course is like, you know, being specific, you're going to need help from a friend. You just are. And that's okay. Like, even if you didn't have a baby in the NICU, you, you as a new parent with a, with a baby that you take home, that's full term, you need help. It's, it takes a village. So, um, I think it's really important when you are asking for help from friends to just to be specific about what you need. Like, I need you to watch my kids today. I need you to help me cook dinner. Um, because oftentimes friends don't know exactly what to do. And that makes sense. If they don't know what your experience is, they don't know what you need. Um, and the more specific that you can really be, uh, it, it, the more empowering it will feel to sort of like, be able to voice what you need in the NICU too with your baby mm -hmm. to your care team. Uh, yeah. and the better you'll feel. Yeah. I think that's such good advice. No matter what happens, I think get, no matter what happens postpartum, you need to, you, you're going to need help. And so thinking in advance of what that help looks like for you, even just imagining what you might need. And then obviously once you're in it, you pivot, you iterate, you figure out what really you need. But like that idea that like I can ask for specifically what I need and I trust that the people who want to help me will help me in those ways. And I'm allowed to just be real specific. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think friends also 
appreciate the directness as well and family members too because it feels kind of awkward to be like well let me know if you need anything and you just the conversation just dies off from there um I know personally I would appreciate it if someone said hey can you go pick this up or can you you know go to Target for me and get that so I think it's mutually beneficial to be direct about what you want it allows the people in your life who want to help to to help you in a meaningful way yeah I totally agree I'm like tell me what to do because I don't I have all this to give, but I need direction. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, and I think yeah, most family sure. members and friends would do anything for you in those moments. But but I think we're so afraid to just say or or overwhelmed. So like, again, thinking in advance of like, what would I need? Mm-hmm. I think especially with, I mean, and this might be a generalization, but I just in my anecdotal experience, I think women are caregivers. So women often have a lot of, uh, you know, might have difficulty asking for care to be given to them um, mm-hmm. and asking for help. Uh, yeah. It's so important, especially in this experience. Yes. So if people want to learn more about you guys, your course, if they want to find out how to like work with you guys, what where should we direct them? You can visit our website. Uh, it's www.nikunook.com. Com. That's N-I-C-U-N-O-O-K.com. But also we're available for like any questions that uh, people have about us, our course, and they can email us directly at hello at NICUNook.com. Great. Okay. We'll put that in the show notes because it's really helpful. And I'm so glad you guys are doing this because it really does fill a need that I know a lot of parents feel very alone in trying to navigate. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, there's, it's a, there's such a gap. We just saw a gap and we really wanted to fill it together. Mm -hmm. It's cool. You get to do it together because you're friends and that's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, it was our pleasure. Thank you so much. Whether it's a NICU stay or a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder like postpartum depression or anxiety, it's crucial for expecting parents to prepare for the what-ifs ahead of time so they have a plan in place. And that's exactly why I created a mental health postpartum checklist and made it completely free because I want all new and expecting parents to have access to it. This interactive checklist and workbook will walk you through everything you need for establishing your personalized physical and emotional support systems throughout your postpartum. You can feel more confident and relaxed knowing you have all your ducks in a row and have a game plan for whatever your new little duckling brings. To download my mental health postpartum checklist, go to my website, drsarahbren.com and click the resources tab. That's drsarahbren.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening. And don't be a stranger.